forever. Dog. So we have three great guests today, but before we get started, I wanted to spend a little more time with Kathleen Jordan. Um, I met Kat back in January when she and her husband, Steve, moved in next door to me, and I am so lucky to know them and call them friends now. Um, and I wanted to talk to Kat for a little bit because when I texted her and said, hey, come on the writer's panel, as I do any writer I meet, um, she sent me back this video, which was both utterly charming, and I'm sure she'll be mortified that she's agreed to let me share. Um, but I want you to hear a little bit of it, and then Kat and I are gonna talk about uh, what went on in that video. So here's a little piece of the video, uh, followed by a conversation I'm having with Kathleen Jordan. Steve. All right, so what's gonna happen tomorrow? I'm gonna pitch Netflix Slutty Teenage Bounty Hunters. I'm crying because it's stressful, but it's all gonna be okay. And this is the video I'm gonna post a year from now when it finally goes on to TV and I'm gonna say, wow, it's fine, but I just was crying because sometimes it's okay to cry. For the record, actually, we're just gonna play this at your um, Nerdist Writers panel when people ask me how you got started selling <laughs> your own show. But crying and dr I'm gonna be drinking, because my mouth hurts so much, I'll be drinking my wine through a straw. Mm, love you. First of all, thank you for letting me share that because it is so real. <laughs> it's so real. Pitching is so scary. Can you, uh, just for the listener, just sort of like contextualize that that video for a second for us? Sure. So um, I was already, I was writing on a show um, that Jenji Cohan and her producing partner, Tara Herman, were um we're producing for Lifetime called American Princess. So I was already kind of in the family. Um, I knew that they had interest in my script um, and we had already kind of gone on the road of developing it. And um, I had really kept my cool just for the record. I didn't cry in front of them at all. <laughs> Though I do cry a lot and I'm not embarrassed about it. Um, and um, so that, you know, it had come time for us to finally go in and talk to Netflix about the show. And they had read the pilot. Um, they were already, you know, we got some some positive positive feedback on the pilot. So we knew, you know, we knew that we were going into a warm room. Jen, she has a, a, a deal at Netflix. Um, but even still, um, you still have to do the song and dance. You still have to sell yourself. And there's so many expectations going into a pitch for that you have, or at least that I place on myself that I want to be charming and breezy, but I also want to seem smart and like I've thought through the entire show and that I know what happens in the last episode of the last season, which of course is a, a very unreasonable expectation uh, to place on yourself. Um, but yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of different kind of hoops to jump through in order to feel like you are. Um, giving off the right vibe. And so I had a lot of pressure. I put a lot of pressure on myself to do well going into this pitch. So this is, that was just me, an adult woman, uh, drinking wine and, and crying the night before my, uh, the, the pitch that sealed, uh, that sealed my fate for the following year. So. Yeah. Um, so I, and I should have said before, that was uh, your husband Steve's voice uh, is the other person on the video and who's trying to calm you and does a good job calming you too. Um, he does a good job, but at, at that point, it's, it's, there comes a time when you're going into a pitch where 
you think you want feedback, but you actually don't want feedback because mm -hmm. it will throw off your game. And so he gave me the smallest note. I mean, I'm sure it was like you swallowed this word or, you know, something like so small and I absolutely <laughs> lost it because it was just like, I can't, I am so paper thin. My ego is so paper thin right now. I can't take any, I can't take any feedback whatsoever. It's so funny. This has like, this has come up on the podcast a lot. I think since, since I keep bringing it up, but yeah. um, the, to do this job and I always apply it to writing, but it's so true of pitching. It's true of every part of the job that like, you have to have both an enormous ego and an enormous amount of humility. Yes. And like pitching where you're there telling people like, I'm the only one who can tell this story, but like the smallest puncture can let all the air out of that. That's so true. It's such a, that's so true. It's a total, it's a total house of cards situation because you can't, um, I guess that's a weird, it's a weird metaphor to use now <laughs> for, for Netflix. <laughs> um, yeah whatever um it's a yeah it's such and you're in it's so fragile because yeah exactly it's because it's all smoke and mirrors like writers i mean you know i'm sure people talk about this on your podcast all the time but writers aren't necessarily performers and are usually not and pitching is it's a performance it's a full and i i like did you know I've, i'm not a performer at all but i did do like a bunch of improv classes and stuff specifically just to get better about talking about writing and it helped but mm -hmm. I, I feel like I'm more confident than maybe some other folks going in and doing a little bit more of a performance but it's you know those those two skills are not don't, don't necessarily go in hand in hand in hand and are often uh don't like don't match at all <laughs> like yeah. being able to perform and being able to write those are two really different things for sure um what was until this, your pitching experience? Um, I had pitched a couple of features that I had gotten. Um, and so that, but nothing, I'd never gone into a network um, and pitched a TV show before. Um, and I had never also gone in, I had always been kind of going in solo and it had been pitching on existing IP or things that were, um, things that that I had already submitted writing on, which is true of this too. I'd already submitted a pilot that they'd read. So I knew that there was some um, familiarity with the project when I walked in, but, um, but yeah, I had never, I had never gone in and, uh, with other people, other people's fate had never been <laughs> riding on my, <laughs> on my back. Like, you know, because I'm going in with the producers who have a reputation and have a, um, you know, have an existing relationship and I don't want to fuck that up. Uh, not that, not that I, you know, not that that might matter that much if I didn't do a good job. Sure. Whatever. Yeah. I mean, going in with other people often feels like reinforcements, like you're bringing big guns with you, which you absolutely were, but there's also a lot more pressure on you. I, I didn't Hopefully. even think of that. Yeah, because you don't want to, you don't want to, you know, you're, they're, they're saying they have faith in you. They're putting themselves on the line a little bit to say, you're somebody we believe in. Also, you don't want to ruin, then Then you have two relationships that you can ruin. You can ruin your relationship <laughs> with the people that you're pitching to, and you can also ruin your relationship with the people that you're pitching with. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of pressure. And it's funny because there's nothing that you can do to alleviate it. It's one of those things mm -hmm. where it, you genuinely just have to go in and do it, and then it's over. 
Well, I was going to ask, so like in that video, we hear you talking with Steve and it does seem like the more that you're convincing yourself, like, of course, I know this. I love this show. Uh, um, I know how to talk about it. I know what the series like. You, you do calm yourself down. What do you do? What do you do right before the pitch? Do you have a, a trick to sort of like get in the right headspace? Oh, I, I try to remind myself that the worst case scenario is that you seem nervous and you were going to seem nervous. There's no like that. And that is okay. Like, it's okay. Like yeah. the, the fact that, you know, you want to go in and seem so cool. And like, you've done this pitch a million times, but um, it shouldn't be embarrassing that you care <laughs> because obviously yeah. you care. And so if executives hear like you kind of choke on a word or whatever, like that's, that's, um, I try to remind myself that if that's the worst case scenario, well, I mean, the worst case scenario is that they hate the pitch. And then you're like, okay, well, if they hate the pitch, but I like the pitch, then I don't want them to buy the show anyway. So um, I don't know that. Yeah. I try, I try to go to the worst place and then like kind of walk it back. I also try to pee like 16 times in the, the 30 <laughs> minutes prior to the meeting. Absolutely. Teenage Bounty Hunters is on the air. They clearly loved it. Um, they liked it. They liked it. No, no, <laughs> I, I, that wasn't me tamping down you saying loving, loving it. I just was wanting to seem uh, humble. Yeah, they liked it. <laughs> they enough to buy it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you, don't, you don't have to seem humble. We know, we know how you feel about how overwhelming <laughs> this all is. Um, what was, did you get feedback after the pitch, either from Genji or from the Netflix execs? No, you know, uh, they, I mean, it was clear that it felt like a fit when we mm. talked about it. Um, and yeah, no, we, I, I mean, I think that it was, that was one of the, uh, the nice things about going in with, uh, with Genji and Tara is that I had, you know, they had helped me kind of shape the pitch ahead of time and helped me. They, they know the business better than me, obviously. And so they know um, they were able to give notes and give some feedback so that I really did feel going in. I felt confident that it was a good version of what we, what I wanted it to be. So, um, so yeah, when I went in it, it, and it felt, it felt good, but it's just, it didn't feel real until, um, my manager always says that it's not real until the check clears. <laughs> At some point, we got the news that the show had sold, and uh, she was like, no, it hasn't sold until you get the check. I'm like, but they literally said it had sold, and uh, she said no. So I had yeah. to wait until I was validated by um, by payment. <laughs> right, which yeah. months of contracts and all that stuff, I'm yes, sure. Exactly. Like, it's, it's it never feels real until the show's on the air, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, well, congratulations. Teenage Bounty Hunters is a great show. Um, you should be very proud of it. And you clearly handled yourself well. <laughs> um, I don't know if I did, but I pulled it off. Come on. I pulled the wool over everyone's eyes and tricked them into giving me a TV show. So there you go. Well, here's hoping for more and more TV shows. Um, folks should really check out Teenage Bounty Hunters right now. Stop this podcast, go watch the show, come back and listen to the rest of the podcast. Because I think we even, like, there may be spoilers even in the conversation that we had with That's the group. true. That's <laughs> true. You want to, yeah, you want to be spoiler-free going into this amazing show. 
<laughs> exactly. <laughs> thank you so much. Um, thank you for sending that video. And that was so sweet. And thanks for chatting with me. Thank you. That's it. We did it. We did it. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker. And it's starting now. Oh, yeah. This is the podcast. Thank you all for being here. Uh, I'm so thrilled to talk to all of you. I'm such a huge fan of all of the shows you are currently working on and past shows. Uh, what I'm going to do first is have you introduce yourselves on the microphone. Uh, tell us who you are so the listener knows what your voice sounds like. And tell us some places they may have seen your name on their television screen. And Dee, let's start with you. I am Dee Harris Lawrence. I am the showrunner of David Makes Man which originally aired on OWN and is now on HBO Max. Um, I'm also the co-showrunner of All Rise. Um, I've been on Shots Fired. Um, I started my career on New York Undercover way back when, which is probably before all of your times, which really makes <laughs> me sad. But I am growing backwards. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Rachel. Uh, I'm Rachel Schuchert. I'm the showrunner of The Babysitter's Club on Netflix. Um, I've also worked on Glow uh, on Netflix for all of its seasons. Also Cursed, which on Netflix, which just came out this season. I've worked on Supergirl, Red Band Society, Huge in France, just a bunch of things like that. Great. Thanks. And Kathleen. Um, <laughs> um, I'm Kathleen Jordan. Um, I am the creator and showrunner of Teenage Bounty Hunters, which is streaming now on Netflix. Um, and before that, I wrote on um, American Princess. Lifetime. All of these shows, you know, for even not whether or not they're your show, whether or not they're somebody else's property, they feel like you're being given an opportunity to dig deep and tell, you know, whether it's personal stories or real stories or emotionally true stories. It feels um, like you're being given that opportunity. So I just want to start by asking, how did you get involved with these shows? Where did they come from? Um, if you didn't create it, how, you know, how did you come to be a part of it? Um, and Dee, again, let's start with you and let's talk about David Makes Man. Um, I actually was on a show at the time uh, called Unsolved. It was limited, ended up being a limited series, but Unsolved, um, the Tupac, uh, Shakur, Biggie um, murders. And that was on USA. And then my agent asked me if I was interested in you know, uh, going in for this um, show called David Makes Man, and that it was done by uh, Terrell McCraney, who had uh, written uh, Moonlight, which I absolutely love. So I'm like, I'm definitely interested. I got the script. I read the script. I put the script down. I sat there for a good 10 minutes, picked the script back up, read it again, and was just blown away. I was crazy busy at the time, but I was like, I really want to put my hat in the ring to be the showrunner. Um, and I said, but I don't have time right now. That was in November. They waited until January and said, we have time. I went in and met with um, Terrell McCraney, Mike Kelly, and Melissa Loy. Mike Kelly created uh, um, Revenge. And I told Terrell at the first sit sitting was that I loved it, and I was a female version of David. 
I understood everything that this character was thinking. I knew exactly what was going through his mind. I had been, you know, uh, bus clear across LA um, to Pally High. I knew what it was to, you know, constantly wear your mask, um, but I also knew the joy of the neighborhood from where I was from, et cetera. And we just got along and vibed. And there were a lot of people that was vying for the position and, you know, just lucky enough to get it. And it's been an exciting ride ever since. Oh, that's, it's incredible. I mean, honestly, the show is a stunner and um, mm -hmm. it tackles so much, but I think, you know, you mm -hmm. really, you point to something that I think it does so well that I want to get into in a little bit with all of you, um, mm -hmm. which is that for all the specifics, it feels universal. You know, uh, mm -hmm. we all know what it's like to be 15. We all know what it's like in various ways to wear that mask or to try to be something else or to find your voice or to have expectations thrust on you. So, you know, it, it, I'm so impressed that the show is doing that in these big and small ways. I wanna talk about how you're pulling it off in a minute. Um, but Rachel, <laughs> let's talk about babysitters. Speaking of expectation, <laughs> uh, there must've been a lot going into this. Well, yeah. I mean, it was such a huge sort of iconic book series, I think, especially for my sort of generation of women. I was a fanatic Babysitter's Club fan from grade, like from about second grade to probably like sixth grade. I had hundreds of them, like, and they were all on a special bookshelf. Like I had a bookshelf because there was just, <laughs> there were so many of those books and I had them like, I was, I was really messy, but I was really like meticulous about my Babysitter's Club books. Like they had to order and like could only be on the special Babysitter's Club shelf. And it, um, it kind of came together. It's funny because I feel like it had all these sort of moving pieces that kind of brought it together. Lucy Katata, who is one of the EPs on the project and is a very close friend of mine, um, especially now that we've been working together on this project for the last three years, but um, we'd always sort of been friendly. And she was had sort of pitched the Babysitter's Club as this huge fan of something that she wanted to produce at like every job she'd ever had. And she was working for Mike DeLuca at the time at his company. And he was like, go for it. And they were kind of trying to track down the rights. I think they figured out finally that Walden Media had the rights because they had this relationship with Scholastic. And Scholastic had been very protective over the rights of the books for years because I think they had been approached and they were very concerned that like they, people would try to kind of take the characters and make it something that it wasn't, that they would sort of try to make it like darker, grittier, like sex it up, <laughs> you know? Um, and so they just hadn't found the right partner, but Walden either, I, I don't know if Walden already had the rights or they, they bought the rights for Mike and Lucy to produce. And then kind of at the same time, Lucia Aniello, who's one of our EPs and producing director, was also a fanatic Babysitter's Club fan and, you know, wanted to buy the rights kind of for herself. She talked to her agents about like, you know, what do you want to, is there anything from your childhood you want to like direct or adapt or whatever? And she was like, yes, I want to do the Babysitter's Club. And they kind of found each other because they're like, oh, well, the rights were actually just sold. And so she met with them, um, but she was going to direct. And so they, they ultimately, they needed like a writer to sort of create the series and to run it. Um, and so I get this email from Lucy. I was about six or seven weeks postpartum at the time, I think. <laughs> and, um, and I was already back to work on GLOW because I went back at some like stupid, <laughs> like, like three weeks after giving birth or something, like still fully like incontinent and sort of <laughs> crazy. <laughs> and I have this, that whole period of my life is just honestly like this fugue state. Like I have very few memories of it. It was like being in a blackout and like occasionally you get like a flicker or something that happened, but like I have no idea like when. 
but so I got this email from Lucy and she was like, did you ever read the Babysitter's Club growing up? And I was like, oh my God, yes, I read all of them. And she was like, okay, I'm working on what I think is going to be a TV adaptation and we're looking for someone to create it. Um, and let's set a call, you, me, and Naya, who is on the studio side, and just talk about like your ideas for it. And I was like, great, I would love to do that. And then because I was immediately postpartum and working full time and just getting about 40 minutes of sleep a night, I totally forgot that I had this phone call set for like a month later. (laughs) Then I was like on the set of Glow, my phone rang, and I was like, oh, fuck, it's this phone call that I'm totally not ready for this job I really want. And I, I remember I like went in this like weird little, like they, there was like this weird little like pumping closet they set up for me that was like a, like a cinder block sort of cell that like somebody had, it was so sad, somebody had like ripped a calendar page with like a palm tree on it out of like a calendar and tacked to the wall to try to make it look like cheerful. <laughs> I was like being in prison, it was so insane. Um, and I went in there and I closed the door And I was like, I guess I just have to sort of wing it through this call. And what I could not believe is that this was like a time in my life where I barely knew my own name. I would like drive off the lot with like the door of my car hanging open and like be like six blocks away and be like, why is there a breeze? Oh, my car door's open. Like I was so tired. But I remembered everything about the Babysitter's Club, like just like these like, like out of nowhere having like completely forgotten and not looked at this thing at all. I had... I remembered all of the kids that they sat for and what they were allergic to and like specific earrings that Claudia wore and like the title of every book. It was just like there in the hard drive. I, I was kind of like astonished by it myself. And I realized just in the course of this conversation too that I related to it in this whole new way having just become a parent that I suddenly had this like other side of it and thinking about kind of setting it in the present and then all the people who were like the parents of the kids that they take care of and even of you know, I'm technically old enough to have like a 12 year old, you know, in, not in LA, but like <laughs> in other places. <laughs> um, I just was like, oh, these are like my peers. The parents are my peers. And I sort of felt like I suddenly understood it on this other level. And uh, that felt like a very cool thing to kind of get into. So the call went really well, um, amazingly. And then I met with Lucia a few weeks later and we just had a really similar experience with the books as girls, they met something really similar to us. I think we have like a really kind of clear sort of shared vision for like the tone of the show Mm -hmm. and kind of um, just like the kind of casting that we wanted to do and what it should look like. And just kind of, it was really like a very aligned sort of idea. So it just all kind of clicked. Um, And then that was in like the fall of 2017, I guess. And then we took it out to pitch like the spring of 2018. And then of course the deal took forever to put together because it always does. Um, so we kind of sold it and then they went away and made the deal. And about, of course, I'm sure like behind the scenes, I kept calling my agents and being like, what is happening? And they're like, don't worry, it's getting done. I'm sure it almost fell apart like 19 times. <laughs> sure. But then finally it happened and, um, and we went into the room like the spring of last year and then shot it through the summer and fall. And now it's out in the world. Wow. Um, I want to follow up on one thing, and that is the the part where you had to pitch it. Um, it's such a small stakes show, right? It's such small personal stories, and and that's why it it soars. I think is they feel so lived in, they feel so real. But how do you pitch that stuff? I mean, I kind of pitched it by just being really adamant that that's what it was, and I was sort of like the network that responds to that. This is like the right network for it you know like we went like the right buyer 
because I, I, we went to like a few different places and I mean, we went to several different places and we, we were lucky to sort of ultimately be in a competitive situation. I think just based on the, um, the value of the property, not necessarily because of anything amazing <laughs> that I did, but I, I just sort of was like, I feel like what people really want from this because it's so dear to so many people is like a really faithful adaptation, you know, that kind of, that kind of brings it into the present day and kind of honors but really honors what was at the core of the books. And so, you know, some, some, you know, in some pitches, the buyers would be like, yeah, but are they going to like solve a crime or like, you know, are, are they going to be faced with like difficult sort of euphoria like choices? And I was like, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> no, they're not. They're just, they're babies and they're learning about themselves. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like I, it wouldn't be that fun to see thirteen-year-olds doing like hard. Oh, no, no, and I just those characters specifically. You know, it's one thing to do it. You know, with, I, I just there's those characters were so real to me as a kid. I would like have these like elaborate fantasies in my head where I was one of the babysitters, and I would just like sit there kind of <laughs> talking to myself, pretending I was at a meeting, and my friends and I would pretend to be them on the playground, and I just could not imagine like you know putting one of them in like a situation where like a dad assaults them or something. I just I couldn't do it. Or, or that they had like, you know, or that and Stony Brook especially like it, it's an it's an interesting place because I, I feel like one of the things that I think I really related to about the books and that that sort of the whole generation of readers did was that none of the girls are perfect and none of them have perfect lives. You know, a lot of them being raised by single mothers or single fathers. Christy's dad has sort of totally abandoned them. Marianne's mom is dead. Stacy has a chronic illness that she's dealing with. You know, like they all have these kind of things that are, that are hard, but they all feel hard on this very human scale, you know? And, and I felt like that was kind of enough. Like that was enough drama for me because at that age, it feels huge. Yeah. And then Stony Brook itself can feel like this very kind of safe place that's like like the real world but not exactly of it you know mm -hmm. like a little bit hermetically sealed from anything that's really like too terrible that it's mostly filled with like well-meaning people who are trying mm -hmm. to live good lives <laughs> well and that's that's in many ways you know true to the girl's age is you know their problems are huge but there's not a lot of awareness of what's going on uh, outside yeah. of their sphere but in the update of it, we did try to make them more aware of things that are going on mm -hmm. in the world. You know, they're kind of more explicitly political. And Dawn, particularly the character of Dawn, has like language to describe that in a way that I don't think sort of nine and ten year olds did when I was a kid. You know, yeah, for sure. I, I mean, I feel like I I really knew if something was unfair, but I didn't necessarily know the phrases, you know, socioeconomic stratification or systemic racism, <laughs> that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And Dawn especially is like living in a world where she really does. Like she's like from LA, she's sort of very political the way I think that kids are now because that's sort of inescapable in their lives. And so I think one thing that's interesting about that character, especially the way she comes in, is that she sort of comes into the group and gives them like vocabulary for the things that they see, you know, and uh, mm -hmm. it's an interesting awakening that way. That's great, and we'll we'll talk some more hmm. about that in a sec. Um, Kat, let's let's get into Teenage Bounty Hunters, um, which is just a blast of a show. The characters do feel true, and more so, that world seems like something, like something you understand and wanted to convey. Am I right in reading it that way? Yes, you are. First off, I will just quickly say, like Stacy, I have type 1 diabetes, so I'm, my blood sugar is dropping. I might need to eat at some point during this, so 
I will mute myself and it won't be on the podcast, but I got a lot of insulin on board. Just letting you guys know. Um, yes, this this show, um, I, I really knew that I wanted to write a script about um, about the South because I feel like it's um, kind of like a missed opportunity in media representation. Um, people are typically kind of caricatures and um, obviously the South, you know, has a lot of problems and I'm the first, I'd be the first person to say that, but we also um, talk about things in a way that, that maybe other parts of the country don't um, because, because we have so much racial diversity in Atlanta and because there's um, such a huge socioeconomic uh, uh, fissure, like the, the wealth gap is, is enormous and there's just a lot, there's a lot of like kind of boiling under the surface that I felt like I wanted to, um, jump into and so yes this this show well obviously I wasn't a bounty hunter um in high school it's was based on my kind of uh repressed uh, <laughs> adolescence um at a very Christian very uh politically conservative um high school I um I grew up in a democratic family my dad was President Carter's chief of staff and I, so we were Democrats extremely, and um, it was, I always, I like to say that I feel like there's value in being in the ideological minority sometimes because you're able to grow empathy for people that think differently from you, though that empathy is being tested <laughs> in 2020 <laughs> as I look around uh, the world. But um, I, I think that, um, yeah, there's there was a lot about my growing up that kind of inspired inspired the show for sure. Mm -hmm. um, but it kind of came about um, because I, I had been producing and working in reality TV for um, eight or so years, just trying to crack in and trying to get a script that anyone would care about. And my manager gave me the advice um, that you should just write the most crazy, unproducible script write something that no, literally no one would ever make. <laughs> and so I wrote what was called at the time, slutty teenage bounty hunters. Um, and I, um, I, you know, I really, I was like, what's, I mean, kind of a little bit inspired by specs I'd heard about. And I heard about, um, I think Liz Merriweather had a spec called sluts or something along those lines. Oh, yeah, I remember yeah. that one. <laughs> I remember thinking like, what is it about, you know, what is it about that 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 is, you know, that you can't not read? Um, and so, I just thought I loved I loved kind of procedural uh, teen shows when I was, I was younger, Veronica Mars and Buffy and those sorts of things. But I wanted to speak to real like political issues and to have real characters. Not that those shows don't have that, but to just to your thing that maybe the characters are feeling a little bit more real. Um, that that was definitely my intention and. Um, yeah, so I wrote this crazy script, um, like an hour-long comedy <laughs> with explosions in it and like um, the word slutty in the title, um, and it got me staffed on my first show, and that show, I got a crazy, you know, the craziest email of my life, which is that it was submitted to Jenji Cohan and her producing partner, Tara Herman, because they were staffing a room for um, a Lifetime show called American Princess, and um, they said, we'd love to meet you, and also what's going on with this script. <laughs> I'm like, uh, <laughs> nah, nothing, nothing. <laughs> nothing's going on with that script. 
it's sitting, it was originally written in Celtics, and it's, then I wrote it in, in final draft. I mean, really nothing's going on with that. <laughs> um, and so <laughs> we sold it to Netflix, and uh, then we made it. Did you, so, I'm, I'm just curious about um, that, that process that, you know, you sort of shorthand, but like, did the script go to Netflix or did you go in and pitch it or was it a combination of those things? The script went into Netflix to see if to gauge interest. Um, and um, then from there, I went in and when I met with Genji and Tara, I, I had a, the, the season, season one has a big, um, a couple of big twists at the end. Um, and they, so I went in and pitched just kind of knowing that they like the bingeable thing. And that's also the kind of show that I like to watch anyway, like shows with twists and turns. And mm-hmm. when I was not that this is, this is an outdated thing now, but my favorite movie when I was a kid was uh, the usual suspects. My, my uh, screen name was verbal Kent 9980. That's pretty embarrassing, especially now that really, you know, people don't like mm-hmm. Kevin anymore i get that mm-hmm. um, but um i love twists and turns and um so i wanted to have that kind of element to the show so i when when we went in when i went in to meet with tara and genji for the first time i kind of pitched them what i thought would happen at the end of the first season um and then you know built out the pitch a little bit um talked with them developed it some and then we went in and pitched like a couple weeks later um gotcha. and we sold it it was crazy i know that's, that's not Normally, <laughs> but, but like, sometimes it is. And at least I had eight years of working in the trenches of reality TV. So I like to, <laughs> I know that it happened quickly, but at the same time, I, um, you know, I was like in the woods with like me and just a camera guy, like holding <laughs> a boom for several years. So I'm like, okay, I a little bit earned my, <laughs> earned my stripes. And then I'll be like, kind of step in to be able to show run is because I have so much on set and post experience. But sure. anyway, yeah. That's no, that story. makes a lot mm-hmm. of sense. Um, and it's awesome. a great story. And it's such a good show. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, people should go check it out. It's such a fun ride. Um, I want to talk about, for all of you, finding the voice of your show. Because I think there's something really interesting happening and so, uh, an almost like meta quality that happens in all of these shows that it can be poetic and helps you both sort of steep yourself into the world of the show um, and understand the characters better. It's, a, it's an, an almost subjective point of view, or it often is a subjective point of view, where like in David Makes Man, there are these great sort of, for lack of a better word, flights of fancy um, mm-hmm. that David will, will see a scene take place and then find out it was only in David's uh, head. Or, you know, the shifting point of view in Babysitter's Club and the voiceover that comes with that. Um, and the twin language uh, in Teenage Bounty Hunters, which is such a great tool for getting us in their heads. I want to talk about all those things and how they were discovered. And like, so often we were just concentrated on story, 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 and character, 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 that it's easy to forget this is a visual medium. And I think you all have done really impressive things with that. So Dee, let's talk about David first and that world which in which it feels like any of this kind of subjective storytelling can happen. Mm-hmm. For sure. And, you know, I give a lot of credit to, you know, Terrell, you know, in a way where his, you know, character, I mean, I'd never seen characters put on the page where you deal with their interiority, 
as you go through uh, yeah. as far as their POV. And it was about, of okay, what is this language that we're going to give, this um, visual language we're going to give this character going forward? And uh, we were calling it magical realism, you know, and how we were going there and how you, uh, uh, you know, project that on the screen, what is going on in his mind. And I was telling him, which is why we, another reason why we connected, was that I was a big daydreamer when I was a kid. Uh, I would have whole movies, stories, and everything going on in my head until I was like, um, I think I read uh, The Outsiders. And I'm like, wait a minute, this person was 16 when they wrote this? And then it wasn't until probably close to a year later that I found out, oh no, Essie Hinton was also a girl, a 16-year-old girl who wrote that. Mm-hmm. So I was like at 13, I'm writing this. I'm writing my, you know, my, my story. Are you just down. finding this out for the first time? <laughs> I'm just finding this out. Really? So crazy. Yeah, I'm sitting here thinking that you just blew my mind. I thought Essie Hinton was like a 55-year-old man. Oh my God. Everybody thought that was like a young man who wrote it. It's Susie Hinton. That's her name. And they're like, you wrote this. Like, like, you just blew my mind. And to to that point, I actually got to meet her. I don't, I've met a lot of people in my lifetime. Um, And we, I was working on a show called Saving Grace, starring Holly Hunter. And we went to Tulsa. Um, And I was telling a friend this because she lives in Tulsa, how that, you know, that book changed my life in a, a lot of ways. And they ended up surprising me and bringing her to our panel that we were speaking on. Oh my and uh, I have a writer friend today that said, if you would have seen your face, and I, I have <laughs> like been around Quincy Jones. I have been around by a lot of people and I lost it. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> and she ended up sending me a book because, about that moment. But yeah, I, I, I thought, yeah. Which, and she was pretty awesome. She the is pretty awesome. that you loved when you were kids, like, I feel like you're starstruck by in a totally different way. Like, exactly. Like, that's that your, your childhood, that's your... Totally. Mm-hmm. I met Pee Wee Herman yeah. after his Broadway show and he was like still in his costume. Like he was still dressed as Pee Wee. We we're like in his dressing room and he was kind of going down mm-hmm. a line of people and he got to me and I like just... And I was like, I just like, I was, you know, I met a lot of people and I just like, couldn't talk. Like I couldn't talk. And he got this like very understanding look on his face and he sort of leaned forward and he goes, and what's your name? <laughs> <laughs> like I was like a little girl. I was like 31 years, I was like 32 years old. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> and I was like, I'm Rachel. Like I turned into like a six year old. Exactly. I, it was embarrassing. And I, you know, she said, if I would have taken a movie, I would have just like, I never thought you would act like that. Because I'm like always reserved. Yeah, she made me lose it. Oh, but uh, all that to, yeah, <laughs> anyway. Way. But all that to say that, you know, after I started putting pen to paper and writing out my stories, I started daydreaming less. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I knew exactly the language that Terrell was speaking of. So it's just a matter of, okay, how do we like put that visual language on when you grow up, you know, in areas and places where you don't always get to tell your stories and you, there's so much going on in your head. Uh, so we brought on a director who knew, you know, who knew uh, Michael uh, Williams, who had not done television before, um, but wow. had done these great commercials and these short films. 
in a huge way. He helped us with the visual language, though Terrell did know a lot of it, and we both know what we wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Like uh, um, the the moment where uh, David um, is talking to his mom when she's re- you know reaming him out in a way, and that moment where all he wants to do is crying like holds her, and then you go around and you realize that didn't really happen, but that's really what he wants to do. Yeah. And it's, so we wanted those to play as the magical realism um, uh, using cameras, but also in how we use in his, his dreams and how he wishes things were and how he goes, goes about his life in the different worlds he goes into. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So that was like a big thing for us. It's, and it's, it's not surprising to hear that it was sort of baked in and that like, it's again, trying to convey this complicated world that a 15 year old Mm -hmm. lives and and david's is you know Mm -hmm. more complicated than so many others so it's so effective Mm -hmm. um absolutely um kat i want to ask about that that twin language that we see right in the pilot uh it's so great where did that come from was that again was it always baked into the script it wasn't it came a little bit later just as some extra like a little extra spice and spin but um it it gives I, what we've loved to, about it in the writer's room and just like breaking and writing the first season um, and starting to talk about the second season is that it gives these two girls, the, the show I think like really shines when it's these two ladies and also also with Kadeem Hardison, like the, the three of them together really have a great sure. chemistry and that's like where the show lives. But being able to see um, the shorthand between the sisters and to be able to kind of cut through the bullshit of everything else that's going on and also be able to kind of see of being a teenager also. So we'll, they'll have a moment where they need to communicate something, but there's always an opportunity for an out with a joke because they're, they're idiots, they're teenagers, they don't know what they're talking about. And so there's always, um, we like to talk about like the dual stakes of the show that um, sometimes it's more important to like kiss that person at school than it is to na- like nab the skip that's worth a hundred thousand dollars because you're a teenager and your brain isn't you know isn't developed and you aren't you're not making rational decisions. Um, and so that yeah, that's a like an opportunity to do that. Also, just like you know, it's I get jealous of shows that have uh, that the uh, kind of mockumentary format just because it's such a it's such a fun and easy way to uh, just immediately get into somebody's head so we wanted to be, find a different way to do that yeah I mean it is like it's a great exposition shortcut but it comes from character uh, so right. it's always fun to watch uh, and, and like you say you get to see again how complicated these teenagers are yeah. uh, which is part of the fun of the show too I think it's really smart thank you it's also an opportunity the stakes too and to remind people what the stakes are it's like even if we're not saying even if we're not getting explicit exposition out we're saying this is why this matters in this yeah. moment because oh my gosh this is how i'm feeling omg <laughs> totally um and then um rachel i wanted to ask about like the rotating point of view in babysitters because that as much as it seems like the natural choice for it and it is how the books were it, it's not always an obvious choice for a TV show. And I think we want one character to hang on to. Um, and you're, you know, you have four or five leads. So tell me about like finding that and finding the, that initial story for each of the girls too. Well, the first, um, the first episodes of the season are really each based on a book. And they're mm-hmm. usually the books that kind of introduce the girls individually in the series. So they're kind of based on each of their, 
their introductory books, so to speak. Um, and it, and yeah, it, it was one of the things I always really liked about the books because you kind of, you kind of felt like you were really part of a group as opposed to kind of following just a single protagonist. And because of that, it always felt very sort of like communitarian, <laughs> you know, in a, like in a true kind of ensemble sense. And I think that, you know, at different points you would identify with each of the girls and they all kind of were just unlocked to you in this way. And you had the same intimacy with each character as you had with, it didn't just have to be the one that you kind of superficially identified with for whatever reason, mm -hmm. like you really got into the head of each one of them. And that felt very meaningful to kind of um, continue. And, and also I think it felt like it was sort of honoring the heritage of the show in the terms of, of the books and how the books were written in these kind of first person monologues. And, um, and you got a sense of that sort of narration. And I also felt like it gives it a little bit of a like nostalgic wonder years kind of quality, which is what I wanted for the show where it feels a little bit like someone is telling you a story that happened to them a little while ago. And you feel sort of, you feel sort of taken care of that way that there's an immediacy to it as you're watching it but like you, you just kind of have a sense that someone is looking back a little bit and that to me felt like really emotionally effective in terms of thinking of the audience like many of whom are kids who are watching this for the first time and first starting to meet these characters but a lot of whom I knew were people that had grown up with the books and were kind of looking back at their own childhood and their own adolescence through the books and through the show so it just felt like a really um you know was, I don't think I really thought about it in terms of like the mechanics of the show, it just sort of instinctively felt like the right thing. And then as we started, as I started to write the pilot and as we like continued to write it, it just really felt very natural and right, you know, that you could kind of um, fill in the gaps this way and kind of get to know each of the characters. And by the time you've kind of had an episode with each one of them, you feel like you really have a sense of who they are and also like where they fit into this group dynamic. Yeah. Um, so it just felt really useful that way. And I also have always really liked shows with voiceover. I don't, I don't know why I like, I kind of like that aspect of narration and kind of figuring out when somebody's a reliable narrator and unreliable narrator. And, and it also just felt, um, you know, they start off with their internal monologues kind of being very different and individual. And as through the course of the season, as they start to sort of coalesce more as a group and their friendship grows and the club grows, I feel like, what they're thinking becomes a little more similar to each other in a way that felt really like it kind of grows together. And we talked about that, you know, in terms of like their costuming and stuff like that, that at first they all seem very separate. And as like the show goes on, like suddenly you see like Christy wearing overalls the way Claudia wears overalls, even though they're different overalls, but like she's been picking up on the way that Claudia dresses and it's influencing her just the tiny bit, you know, the kind of things that really happen organically over the course of a school year with your friends. So um, the voiceover felt like a, kind of an interesting way to put that together too in a way that was just very subtle. You yeah. Know? Let's, let's talk about your, your rooms first. Uh, let's talk about your writer's rooms on these shows and putting together those rooms and the makeup of those rooms and what were your expectations as the showrunner of those rooms that you put together? And anyone who wants to jump in first is welcome. Well, um, I'll start. Um, as far as... Uh, and, me, and me and Terrell did this together, uh, but I was like a big proponent um, of a, I like to cast, you know, my room as I like to call it. Uh, and how, you know, you look at the script and, you know, you uh, read people's scripts and you bring them in, but it was kind of falling, it kind of was falling into place in a certain way. And I have a tendency to take a little longer 
when it comes to doing the room, not just about like, okay, let's get this, you know, producer here, that's supervising producer. I, it's really about voices and how they go and people's experiences and uh, very important for me to always to have um, inclusion um, and diversity considering a lot of times I was the only, um, the only black, uh, the only female. Um, and if you got me, you got a twofer. So, um, so that was big. And that was like a big thing for me going in. Like, I don't want an only, so, you know, everyone, you know, have it. So you're not the person that is going to speak for like all the culture and race. Uh, so that was like a big thing for us. Also, David is set in, um, uh, uh, Miami, um, Southern Florida. So that was important also because that's where Terrell wanted to keep it. So we have, we found these two. Uh, staff writers who actually kind of like found Terrell and we thought okay staff writers do we bring them on they came in uh uh two African young African-American men that were like so great dressed up you know I think they both had ties on they had briefcases oh. and okay it was like all right I know I'm a little cynical now I've been in this business for a while but it's like they came in they were like ready and when I tell you they did their homework they came in talking about the script. They had ideas. They were to the point where we're like, okay, you need to hold up because we actually, you're going into a territory that we're already like going into. But they were just prepared. And it was so refreshing as, you know, my other EP, Mike Kelly said that it was immediate. We fell in love with it. It was, you know, what I remembered coming into this business going, oh my God, it's like, I love storytelling, I love all this. And they had all the, that fervor. And, and being able to bring someone like that, that normally wouldn't, you know, uh, be able to have an opportunity was like really huge for us. And, you know, now they're about to like do a, a feature uh, for a big producer. So it's kind of like, that's what the writer's rooms are, are about, you know, yeah, uh, for that's me. terrific. Um, the other thing I wanted to just, let me follow up real quick on a couple things. Um, what kind of material were you reading um, when staffing that room? Was it all scripts? Were there spec scripts? Were there other things that you were reading? Um, there were mostly spec scripts. Um, I think one had a feature. Um, but yeah, they were all like, and the original, you know, voices, which I, mm -hmm. I love and personal. It wasn't that it was like um, a derivative of something else, but they were all kind of like personal to their experiences, um, which really sounded out for me, which I, I, I liked a lot. Yeah, and the other thing I meant to ask you, um, where did you shoot David? Um, in Orlando, Florida. Oh, really? It, you know, it feels so, like Florida. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so that was a big fight too, because they wanted us to go to Atlanta, Georgia. And we were like, uh, how many shows were in Atlanta? How are we gonna do the show in Atlanta? And it was very, you know, a big thing for us to also, um, uh, we also did the show in blocks because we had a lot of, you know, uh, kids on the show and we wanted a family kind of like atmosphere. Mm. Uh, and we knew we couldn't afford Miami, you know, so it was going, okay, what's closer to that? Because we're not at the beach. It's a very different type of floor, you know, uh, um, look at Miami. So everybody said, okay, we can do it in Orlando. I had never been to, you know, you know, Florida, Orlando. So going down there, I had like very... <laughs> you know, um, certain expectations. I'm like, all right, I'm in Florida. All right, Republican town. Let's see what's going on. But when I say everybody was like great and our crew, we were able to have, you know, a diverse crew and everything. Um, and they were very welcoming because they don't get, they get, they do mostly commercials there. Mm -hmm. 
and I think um, game shows. Yeah. Uh, and we were set at Universal, but we were very welcoming by the Film Commission. We were very welcoming by, um, by there's a performing high school called Dr. Phillips that was fant- fantastic uh, to us. So we got a lot because of that and created a family down there in Orlando. So That's great. And, and it has this, mm-hmm. uh, the amazing lived in feel of that. Like it doesn't feel like other shows and that's probably because it's in Florida. It is the most humid show on television. <laughs> yes, all the sweating. That was very real sweating. Like there's so much sweating in Miami as we were sweating watching it and shooting it, yes. That's um, great. Um, <laughs> Rachel, the, the same question, uh, Rachel, about putting together your writer's room. Um, like, what were you looking for? What, what, what did you expect from them? Well, I just felt that in order to write The Babysitter's Club, being in the writer's room needed to feel as much as possible like being in The Babysitter's Club. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, that was kind of the energy that I wanted, you know? Um, and so I... So I really tried to think about, um, you know, while sort of casting the room and figuring out like, you know, who had a voice that I thought could sort of bring insight to this character, like who would kind of, you know, serve serve which purpose or who I thought like, oh, I know that this person has an amazing sense of structure. I know this person is right on the page. I also tried to just find people that I thought would really like each other, you know, as opposed to even just what I responded to, because I was like, I think we really need this like kind of giggly collegial (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> kind of atmosphere, the show is not going to work. Uh-huh. So I sort of, um, so that was kind of something I was really looking for, was just people that I thought would want to hang out, <laughs> which is like a weird <laughs> thing to say, but I've been in rooms where it was That's like, what it is, you're hanging yeah, out. Yeah, exactly. I have been in rooms that were like very much not like that, and like sometimes they work for the sake of the show and they're, you know, productive, but like it didn't feel like that was the environment that would create this show. Um, mm-hmm. So I was really kind of trying to think about what I thought. Oh, I think Joanna will really get along with Jay, like that kind of thing, you know. As I was meeting people, and I, I had a few people that I knew, you know, that I knew prior to going into it that I thought would be that I kind of had an eye on, you know. Um, and I was just hoping it would sort of line up. And then this was the first time that I, you know, obviously I wanted it to be as female as possible. I wanted it to be as diverse as possible, and that was those were really major priorities. I also knew that I wanted like some some young voices in it. You know, like I think I was maybe the oldest person in my room, <laughs> which because I just sort of was like, this is about kids. Like I feel like I need people that still kind of remember that in a really visceral way. Um, and I'll sort of take care of the parent stuff. <laughs> but, um, but it was, uh, but so th- those were things I thought about. And then it's funny that, um, you mentioned D like really looking for like voicey scripts and and Kathleen how your manager was like write a script that like you don't think anyone would ever make because that is absolutely like what I found myself responding to as I was reading um, submissions and specs and things like that I was because you get so many scripts that are so similar to each other and you're like oh they're trying to write a show they think will sell it's about like a group exactly. of like people in their 20s dating you know or like trying to navigate you know, love in the age of Instagram. And I would just like get, even if they were well done, I was just so uninterested after like five or 10 pages. Cause like, what is there really to say? And and it right. kind of stifles the voice. So I, I, I would read these things and sort of not have any sense of who this person was as a person or as a writer or what they were going to bring to the table in the room. And I just, you know, I feel like a script that you write that you're sending for submission should sort of immediately tell the writer what your real sensibility is in your most kind of unbridled way, because you can always pull it back, you know? Exactly. 
but like you can't kind of you can't kind of imagine something that isn't there especially when you're reading you know 400 scripts or something in a week <laughs> so things that really like stuck out I found were the people that like got meetings it was like the people that wrote the weirdest <laughs> <laughs> it makes sense. And, yeah. And so, I, you know, and I think, um, and also I think that that's sort of my sensibility too, is that it's just a little bit offbeat. So even though I knew we were going to make this very kind of like, like wholesome, sweet show, I knew that like we would connect and that we would sort of have like a kind yeah. of base weirdness that we would then like find <laughs> the, the sweetness and the empathy within. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> you can yeah. find that stuff. Bring the weird. Yeah, anybody you know? can do that. But I, did, but Lucia and I um, also, because she was sort of also reading submissions at the same time, we really talked to a lot because we knew that we were making a show for, for kids, and and we, but we really wanted it to be funny and smart and to feel really emotionally complex, especially because it feels like a lot of things, things that are made for girls are not treated with that kind of seriousness. You know, I think the industry exactly. treats things that like boys grew up with as like Spider-Man, mm -hmm. like it's fucking Hamlet, you know, but like stuff that girls were obsessed with, with like I endless layers, like let's really <laughs> dig into Bruce Wayne's psychology again. And it's like, his parents were murdered. That's it. That's all. That's all. And he's rich. Like there's nothing else to say. It's not that complicated. He's literally a cartoon character. <laughs> exactly. And like Star Wars or whatever, you know, the mythology of it. And it's like, if they're talking about ancient Greece and like, and it th things that girls were really as obsessed with is sort of not treated with the same seriousness or like it contains the same kind of layers and multitudes. So, so we sort of mm -hmm. really wanted to treat it like that. And so we looked primarily for kind of like, even sort of like hard, like harder comedy writers or harder sort of a more adult writers that we thought could kind of bring this sort of YA sensibility to it and like the openness and the heart to it as opposed to kind of trying to find people who had done like sort of kid shows that we thought could be funny so, you know it's a little bit yeah. the totally and and it works I mean I think I think pointedly finding that paid off for you because it does feel like a show that you know, I, an adult man, can watch and connect to <laughs> because these are rich characters, uh, not just the, the girls, but all of them. Yeah, I mean, there's all, I mean, when you think about some of the greatest, most classic movies, there are, there's many of them are about kids, you know, yeah. it's like E.T. is about a boy, you know, or like Moonrise Kingdom mm -hmm. or Moonlight, you yeah. know, all mm -hmm. of which are like these incredible, rich movies about children. And children right. have incredibly rich emotional lives. I think sometimes richer than adults because they haven't learned to kind of compartmentalize yet. Exactly. Themselves. So mm -hmm. um, we really just wanted to treat them seriously. Mm -hmm. That's great. Um, I want to wrap up this writer's room conversation with you, Kat, and then move on to talking about um, really writing for and about um, young people. But Kat, I feel like uh, Teenage Bounty Hunters had asked something tricky of the writer's room, which is that you had to write this action comedy procedural and also yeah. this like the Christian teenage, uh, like heady world of confusion for these girls. Tell me about tackling that with these writers. Yeah, well, um, I, same of what, with what Dee was saying really resonated with me is that um, specifically with uh, like diversity and racial diversity, specifically with black writers, we were it was important that because it's uh, we're we're writing a uh, a show with a lot of black characters in a black in a majority black city like 
you can't, you have to have, there can't just be the one. That's not right. Really, you know, <laughs> Atlanta, yeah. Yeah, that's not really fair. To <laughs> and so, you, would you like to speak for all black people in the entire right. body? Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, racial diversity was really important to us. Um, also, uh, we have, yeah, we had diversity in terms of, we had neurodiversity, we had, um, we had gender, uh, gender queerness, we had, um, you know, we had, we, it was important to us to, to bring a lot of different points of view. Unusual is that we wanted a Christian writer, um, because, um, and that's kind of hard to find in Los Angeles. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but we worked with somebody yeah. really great who was able to, because the whole, the show is really, um, is our, our point of view is to be, we're obviously, Christianity is a huge theme of the show. Um, and we wanted to be able to talk lovingly about Christians, but also point out hypocrisies. Um, and we didn't want to pull any punches, but we also didn't want to punch down. So it was important for us to have somebody in the room who could kind of keep us in check um, about things because, you know, a lot of us have lived in Los Angeles or New York for a while and especially like leaving our more, you know, living in these more coastal places, it's, it is not as much a part of our main culture, but the majority mm-hmm. of the country is Christian <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and it's a kind of a missed opportunity. It felt like for something that, you know, so many people that I grew up around, um, I grew up in a really Christian community. I myself am not, um, not a practicing Christian, but I have so much love and empathy for for that point of view and um i don't know it just seems like we um it's 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 an easy thing to make fun of but not an easy thing to get right and that was really mm-hmm. I'm, th- I'm thrilled that it seems like as people are watching the show they're getting that that we're not making fun of religion but that we're talking about religion so yeah so diversity i guess the, that was that was something that was important for sure um and then in, you know in point of view um in background socioeconomic background all, kind of all of those things um and then yeah as far as what we read we were read genji and tara really like to read plays which was something that i would not have <laughs> wouldn't have uh done myself uh but then it actually brought us some really amazing writers so um mm-hmm. yeah original original pilots and and plays and to to both uh what Rachel and you were saying about the having something, you know, a, a point of view, something different. That was that was really important because, yeah, it's you read a lot of the same kind of low stakes stuff about relationships, <laughs> and it's you really do need to be something different. A lot of jokes about juice. Right. Like, a lot of jokes about what? Like a lot of jokes about juice. Like a lot of jokes. Oh, yes. about juice. Those kind of pilots. Um, but, uh, <laughs> ha 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 ha. A lot of, a lot of, a lot of <laughs> yeah, that's definitely true. Um, yeah, and it, it's like I, we, I would have, we read, we would read a short story that was six pages, but that was completely insane, and that would make you feel like your head fell off at the end. And mm-hmm. that's so much more exciting than reading, you know, a comedy about somebody, you know, moving in with her friend who's trying to have an open relationship. <laughs> you know, and it's like. <laughs> Well, I mean, there's not that that can't be done in an interesting way, but did I have a baby? Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of like, oh, I guess we're telling that story again. Um, so. That's funny. This is um, this I also is a, read plays. I yeah, just realized that, but yes, no, no, no I was just gonna say, I, um, I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. I did read, read plays, and there was like a short um, short story in there as well. But um, yeah, it's like I think that's when you get like those those voices that are not about like, oh. 
am I going to have a baby today or am I not going to have a baby? Like what Rachel was saying. Well, I think this is, I mean, it, it rarely comes up on the podcast, but it's such a reality of, you know, being in this business is like, everybody is kind of, we're all chasing the same jobs. And like, you have to stand mm-hmm. out from the crowd on that with that sample that you're sending. And that does mean telling a personal story or telling a story that only you can tell. Um, so I'm mm-hmm. glad to hear, especially as you call out the examples of the things you're seeing hundreds of. Yeah, and, that, <laughs> and I understand when people write those, you know, they're, they're accessible and they are personal. Mm-hmm. Whether or not you're gonna have a baby or looking for someone to love, those are very personal stories, but I think um, it's helpful to find at least like a really unusual way to tell them, just yeah. logistically, mm-hmm. just so people remember. <clears throat> totally, and it's and and that ultimately, I think people do forget that like on our side of things, we're reading, like you said, sometimes three, four hundred scripts, and mm. while you might have a really beautiful t- turn a phrase at the end of the, the sixth page, we might not get there because we might not be really that moved by the first five yeah. and it's a bummer mm-hmm. because that's not really how you know writing should be consumed but for this specific purpose when you know you have different buckets to fill or different um different kinds of folks that you know you want in the room then uh you know if that isn't reflected in the writing that's it's tough it's tough to get excited about you yeah. know I read, mm-hmm. to the, I read to the end of all of them i'm such a like what i'm, I'm such a like <laughs> I'm actually with Rachel. I try. I actually try to make it like through too. It's like unless it's really yeah, like unless it's really I've seen like, this movie before. Just, yeah, but I just was like, I just feel like I owe it. It's like no one will ever know, <laughs> but I'm such a like, <laughs> I'm such a like dutiful Midwesterner. <laughs> oh my like, god, y'all! It's so nice I that just... someone sent me the script to be on my show. I I have to read all, all sixty-four pages. <laughs> And I just want to think that somebody did that for me because I always think I'm like, okay, I don't want anybody going. I'm like, okay, you didn't read my, you know, my script because it's like, I would actually like sometimes when I was like doing it, it was like, you know, ask them a question to see if they got to the end, you know, or what they said when I was like, you know, doing it. So, and they would like say, oh yeah, I'm like, mm, you didn't make it. Or it's like something like in my head. <laughs> but so I'm just like, okay, I'm not going to get caught. I rarely changed my mind. I mean, it wasn't a good use right. of my time because it was like, there was almost nothing that like, after reading the whole thing, I was like, well, I didn't like the first six or 10 pages of this, but it really turned around for me at the end. Right. Usually, my opinion was exactly the same usually by the end, but, but, mm-hmm. but I it's felt like a better person and that is what this is about. <laughs> <laughs> Well, just to be clear, I would always finish the ones I liked. I just would stop reading the ones that I didn't. Like. Just finish on them, you know. I definitely read all the ones I liked. But when, right. once you, yeah, I think that that's true. I mean, I would at first I was like, okay, fifteen pages, and then after a month of reading, I was like, okay, twelve pages, and then you just kind of scale it back. As you, it's a lot of reading. <laughs> it's a lot of reading. Um, let's let's mm-hmm. talk for a sec about um, writing for and about young people. And I kind of love that, like you mentioned a second ago, that you know you can write these stories, uh, or someone can write a sample that is something you've seen a hundred times. Whether it's about you know finding love in the city, or you know your group of friends, or whatever it is, but you have to make it different. You have to make it stand out. You have to make it personal. You're all writing about teenagers. Um, some of the beats in your shows are even the same, but <laughs> they, they never feel that way, right? Because they're telling these very specific stories. Um, let's talk about getting into the heads of teenagers. 
and what that process is and how do you keep it honest on the page and on the screen? It's a broad question, so it's really just a jumping off point to talk about writing for young people. For, um, I think for David McMahon, I'll just go first. It was more, more about your inner child. You know, um, that show is in a huge way. Uh, it's about, uh, you know, it's loosely about Terrell's inner child, my inner child, um, and a lot of the uh, writers that we had on because we would have these like, you know, go at it, you know, deep conversations, you know, about, you know, I mean, there's some things that <laughs> I would do or it's like, like, Essie Henson for you know so it's like my I would say oh my god my 13 year old self is screaming her ass off right now. <laughs> you know because it's like you are constant you know in connection yeah. with your you know inner child um so I think that was like a huge thing and it seemed that all of us uh were very connected to that and how we were and because David is you know that he's you know growing up fast in one way as he's still, but he doesn't know everything. And he thinks he does, but he has this ability to see, you know, the world around him, you know, because he's had to grow up this way. Um, and we all could relate to that in a, in a certain way of how, you know, he would go forth and how he would deal in a situation. Mm -hmm. um, but then, you know, with the other kids, and I think each kid was kind of going through their own thing. Um, and we had, you know, you know, younger folks in there, but in that way, we were able to relate to and remember what it was like. So yeah, were um, there, that's how we, how we approached it. Were there conversations in the room about like personal experiences or, you know, the feelings you yeah. had as a 15 year old and like applying these two characters? Tell me, tell me a little bit oh, about yeah. that stuff from everyone. Well, I mean, I, I had a, I had an acting teacher once in college who used to say this thing that like, don't worry about being funny because if you're not funny, no one will ever ask you to be funny. And I kind of think writing for mm -hmm. teenagers and young people is a little bit the same that like, mm -hmm. if, you, if you're, you're not really drawn to write about teens or kids if I don't, if I think if you don't really still have a strong connection to what your younger self was like, you know, I know that there are people who really kind of like sever that part of themselves or it was never really that vivid. I am not one of those people. <laughs> I still feel very, you know, kind of anchored to my younger self and my childhood and my, I, I feel like I often reference it. I still tell a lot of childhood stories all the time. I just have always been that way. So it wasn't that difficult to kind of access those feelings again. Um, but I sort of came at it just, and I think maybe because of that, because I've just always been like that. And I feel like that person is still so sort of integrated into my personality. Um, it wasn't, I just, I didn't really approach it that differently than writing an adult. You know, it like they, they really are just, they're, you're not that different. You know, you don't think like, I really think the biggest difference between kind of kids and teenagers and adults is just that you have more context for what you're feeling and you have like a little bit, it's like your, your perspective on time shifts. It's like when you take, when you take like your baby to the doctor and they get a shot and they go crazy for 10 seconds because 10 seconds is like a huge portion of their life and they're like, I'm in pain, this is what life is now. And then it stops hurting and then they immediately stop crying. I feel mm -hmm. like that's sort of like being a teen. It's not that like you feel things more or less than adults, but you're feeling them for the first time. So you sort of don't have the sense yet that they will eventually be over or that you will feel better or that you'll feel better maybe sooner than you think you will. Like you kind mm -hmm. of haven't learned how to, self-soothe in quite the same way or to you know or to sort of kill your heart <laughs> in quite the same way <laughs> so um so 
I, I feel like it's very accessible that way if you kind of don't think of them as being different. You know, I kind of approach the characters mm -hmm. the same way I've approached characters in other shows I've written on, on Glow, for example, where we have these sort of complicated, emotionally complex women in a group, you know, and their, their sort of interactions are a, a, like a lot of the story and their interpersonal dynamics. And we just, and then I think honestly, once I also sort of started to see the characters being brought to life by the actresses, like they really kind of melded together because the girls are really are the age that they're they are you know all of the actresses on the show are like 13 we kind of purposefully made that decision to not sort of hire 17 or 18 year olds to play younger um and i think it's sort of startling at first to see how like little they look like i remember when we first started <laughs> casting tapes and we we're like they can't they, they can't look after children <laughs> <laughs> so young, but then like you get sort of used to it and, and you're like, oh no, they're, they're people, like they can follow directions, mm -hmm. they walk and talk, and they feed themselves, and, like, <laughs> you know, but, um, but, but, but just kind of observing them and seeing how they kind of dug into the characters and identified with them also was really helpful. I felt like, you know, I sort of started to write Christy to be a little more like Sophie, but then Sophie also was becoming more like Christy. You know, they kind of like meld into each other in a, in a way. Mm -hmm. I think especially with these younger kids who kind of don't really have a huge division between their character and themselves yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's something all of your shows do is where, I mean, they're cast just perfectly. And so you do get that great melding that so you can start to write towards the actors. Um, the other thing, you know, I think you, you mentioned, Rachel, is uh, context for those emotions, right? Is that's something we gain as adults that these teenagers don't really have. So we get to see them grapple with that, where mm -hmm. for all of your characters, you know, David's world is so huge, yet so small. And that's true of the babysitters. Mm -hmm. And that's true of, of Sterling and Blair. Like, I, I, I'm curious about that aspect. And Kat, let's talk to you about that. Like, keeping their worldview to that of teenagers while also acknowledging that there's a world going on outside. Sure. Well, a, a huge part of, of us telling the stories of two rich white girls in Atlanta is having them kind of be canaries in the coal mine a little bit and putting their feet in their mouths. Um, and so that was something that was important to us. Um, episode three, um, they, there's uh, a skip who's cutting down, beheading Confederate statues. We didn't know that was going to happen a year ago when we were writing it and shooting it, but here, here we are. <laughs> um, and, That's awesome. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Who knows? Let's just throw it out there. Um, and it's funny because we're, you know, at the time we felt like we were talking about something really kind of edgy and exciting and, um, now it's like we've already decided as a culture that we that we're completely eliminating Confederate statues. So we're like, oh, kind of wish the show had been released like three months before this, so we would have seen like uh, there's. Um, but uh, in the you know in that episode, um, the character Blair is not. She is she's going on a date. Um, with her soon to be, sorry to spoil, but boyfriend, uh, Miles, and he's black and she is not, she's not smart about race issues and she puts her foot in her mouth and says some really dumb things. And what's nice to me about work, about writing for teenagers is that you're able, you're able to, to watch them learn lessons. Um, mm -hmm. You know, something that one of our, one of our black writers said a lot is she's like, I hate when 
shows when white people are always right about black things on TV. And it's like, what a, um, what an unhelpful thing to the culture <laughs> for the white, for the white people to come in and like know everything about, about like how to exactly be right about race when that's right. not, real. that's not how the um, reality, right. that's not the mm-hmm. reality. And it's, and you know, um, w- you know, we could go out, we could have the intention of, you know, everyone's going to be exactly like so a hundred percent woke and know exactly what's going on and have the mm-hmm. um, exact most politically correct opinion. But then, that doesn't reflect reality that we don't want to sanitize the South. That's not what the South is like. And then people don't get to kind of see themselves and learn, learn lessons through the character. So that's something that I really value about writing for teenagers and having their worlds be small because you can see them mm-hmm. get blown open. Yeah. Uh, and when Blair, you know, says, she says something at a party and it's clear she's kind of treating black people like a monolith. And it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, it's tricky for us to go there with one of our main characters so early in the season, but we don't regret it because I don't know. It's a, we, that's kind of like one of the mission statements of the show. So that's one element of the small worldview that is like seemed helpful to me. And, um, was just kind of a part of the DNA of like what the show we were writing in the writer's room. Um, and then another element of that is the, that sex is such a big deal on my show. We definitely mm-hmm. don't have 16 year olds playing 16 year olds <laughs> because that's not, um, that would be appropriate. <laughs> Um, the gunplay alone I worked on a show um, like a teen show once where they had sort of they were supposed to be like 16 and 17 and we like they were actually 16 and 17 the actors you know 17 like they looked young I mean they were really the age and I remember when we were get the dailies and we were like oh we can't have them fuck it's like it's not like you don't want to see it and I was like oh this is why they pass like 24 year olds to like teenagers you everyone knows like that woman looks like she's 30 and it's like well she has to (laughs) yeah no that's exactly right well that's I mean that's why our 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 cast is in their 20s and um and it's partially because another one of the kind of like mission statements or thesis statements of the show is that we want to see young women exploring their sexuality in a positive way. Um, and there's enough out there, there's enough drunk sex, teen sex on TV, there's enough um, drunk teen assaults on TV, and and there's enough negative out there. And wouldn't it be nice to just see girls learning, learning how to masturbate, learning the things that are an important part of like, I mean, this is a Tara, one of the, one of our EPs says, this is like wish fulfillment for me, <laughs> like wish that I could have in my high school, not been so repressed and been able to have like positive sexual experiences that were, um, that were not, you know, that weren't tainted by the judgment of the culture around me. And so that's another part, I guess, just as speaking to the small worldview thing that their, their worlds around sex are, are really small and so dependent on what other people think about them, but we, we try to make them stay positive the whole time. So um, it's something, it, if, if, I don't know, yeah, it's, the stakes are really high. I mean, that's the thing about teens. The stakes for all of this stuff is so high, which makes it really fun, right. mm-hmm. fun to write. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. for yeah, sure. It's like, the, it's like that whenever, you know, you get that note, it's like, why now, you know? And... For teens, it's always now. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. There's no other other time. I mean, it's like yeah. their their world is like right in front of them. I mean, yeah. ours was that we were very you know serious about having the ages of the kids be their age. I mean, and 
you know, we were lucky to find uh, someone in McKeeley that played David, who was 15, you know, playing 14-year-old of everything. And he had to carry this for 90, probably 98% of the time, which is um, amazing. As we begin um, season two, he is 17 now. He'll turn 18 at the end of December. And I'm, I, we had a Zoom meeting with him the other day, and I was lost. I'm like, wait a minute, what happened to the child? <laughs> what is happening? <laughs> I mean, oh, I like, know. already is like, I know he, like the, graduated the early. Totally. The girls from the Babysitter's Club keep posting all these, like, very glamorous, like, photo shoots of themselves from you know, on Instagram because they're doing, like, magazine shoots and things like this. And mm-hmm. it's just, like, oh, no. Oh, my goodness. Yes. <laughs> they're, like, like, what is happening? They're, like, they look like they're in a perfume ad. And then, but that was also, I was, like, oh, but that's because the women in, like, perfume ads actually are 14. <laughs> <laughs> um. This is, I, I have so much more that I want to talk about with all of you. I hope you will come back uh, and talk sometime. I mean, like I have the, I have pages of notes here that are like, what about these tertiary characters who all have these huge fulfilled lives with their own stories going on? Like it knocks me out in all of your shows. Um, so thank you for being here. I want to wrap up as we always do by asking you what you are watching on television these days. What's getting you excited or inspired? What are you talking about with your room? If you're allowed to leave your house uh, or if you're not allowed to leave your house, what are you talking about with your, just your loved ones? <laughs> um, uh, and Rachel, let's start with you on this one. Well, um, I watch a lot of PJ Masks on Disney Plus. <laughs> Dark. Uh, I, I watch a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, I've been watching, actually, a show I've taken tremendous comfort from lately is What We Do in the Shadows on FX. Because I'm it's, waiting to see that show. It's oh, so, so good. Funny. I really see it. It's just, like, so hilariously funny. It has really, like, mm-hmm. cheered me up. Because it's not really about anything except being hilarious. And mm-hmm. also, they're kind of sequestered together in this mm-hmm. house and driving That's each other funny. crazy for centuries. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> it feels very zeitgeisty <laughs> that way. Um, I just watched the Howard Ashman documentary on Disney+, Plus, which completely destroyed me. Um, mm. But yeah, I, I... Oh, and what else? Oh, I, I, put, I started watching... Um, I've been watching Perry Mason, the new Perry Mason on HBO, but only in like pieces because it's so like dark and and upsetting that I, I like have to take breaks. <laughs> I, I really have found like I've always really liked like really kind of I don't necessarily write this stuff, but I've always not been afraid of like very dark things. Mm-hmm. And Same. lately, I don't know if it's I had to stop. I like I started I was watching the first season of The Handmaid's Tale and then I started to like get really pregnant and I was like I can't watch this anymore no, so, yeah. mm-hmm. that's know, not a pregnant show it's not a pregnant show and then um then I picked it up again but I just sort of felt differently about it <laughs> I don't know I just feel like mm-hmm. things are so dark right now it's sort of you know I watched Mrs. America recently which I really loved um mm. and uh and yeah I I mostly watch PJ Masks <laughs> <laughs> 
these are these are all good recommendations. I heard that Ashman documentary is great. I haven't watched it's it yet. So but good. I heard yeah. it's Minnie's Boutique. I don't know if you've seen this. It's three minute cartoons where <laughs> Minnie and Daisy have a, a bow store and we watch the one where there's a robot that makes bows. <laughs> oh my goodness. I've seen that when my child was young. I remember <laughs> that. Yes. Yes. I've my, seen all of them. My oh, son is the best with robots so every he always wants to watch that one so i wa we watched about half an hour of that one this morning just <laughs> oh, <laughs> over and over and over again. i feel your pain i totally understand <laughs> uh mine's Dee, 11 now. besides besides <laughs> many what are you watching d exactly um unfortunately I, i'm like going i'm like how is everybody finding time to watch stuff it's like when i get to watch something i'm so excited and I'm going, okay, I did get to watch um, this past Sunday because I've been waiting for it because I read the book um, two years ago, Lovecraft Country. And I was like, oh my God, I was so excited because you just don't get to see black folk in genre, you know, television yeah. shows. And I think Mr. Green and um, all, of the, all of them, the director, Jan Deba, they just did a, a great job, you know, with the, the cast journey. So I'm like, all right, even if I have to watch it one o'clock in the morning, I'll be watching that. Um, my child, my 11 year old just got old enough, uh, where we checked out, uh, Stranger Things. So we were late. There was nobody to talk to about with Stranger Things anymore because <laughs> everybody ever seen it. <laughs> <laughs> so we just got excited amongst ourselves as a family. And it's the is that the, um, everything is delayed. Um, so yeah. And I try and Insecure, you know, um, Insecure and Black is when I'm like, you know, want to like see something like quick. Um, and funny, but I, I'm just going, I want to like, see, I, I, I literally for 20 minutes go, okay, I want to watch this on Netflix. I want to watch this. Yep. Actually, <laughs> my daughter's watching, daughter's watching Babysitter's Club. She loves it. Um, and then we came across Teenage Bounty Hunter and she goes, oh, I want to see that movie. I'm like, no, you're not going to see that. <laughs> but I kind of want to check it out. How old is she? <laughs> but I want to check it out. So. How old is she? <laughs> Um, she is ele eleven. She just turned yeah, eleven. No, no. She <laughs> no. yeah, so I, I got that from the trailer, so I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. not for you yet. Good not call. Couple Great of call. years, couple <laughs> years, and she'll be ready to go. Um, yeah. Cat, what are you I, watching? I, I've been loving. Um, I may destroy you, though. I have to say, that's another one that's like you got to watch an episode and then you got to walk. You take a walk and watch an episode of Frasier. My writers room from yeah, I just David makes man is watching that, and they went they went in on that one. They were they're all blown away, and so they had this chat going, and I had to like do not disturb them because I haven't watched it yet, and I was upset they're going to tell me something. But they're all in, and they say the yeah. same thing. It's uh, it's inc inc incredible. Her, um, Michaela's other show, Chewing Gum, is so good, and um, she's mm -hmm. just like, a really incredible. I love actor. Chewing Gum. Oh, she's incredible. Um, and what else am I watching? I, I tend to put on TV in the background the way that like people listen to music. So I, I've seen Frasier all the way through like probably 30 times. And like, I love Frasier. Um, I'm, I'm always watching Frasier. Um, so um, I, I love the jokes and the farcical restoration drama silliness. Um, and I, we just, yeah, I'm, I've been watching a lot of non, uh, nonfiction things just for something different. So we loved The Last Dance because um, I was didn't was not paying attention to any of that stuff at the time. And um, loved Love on the Spectrum. I gotta say, 
sweet show about yeah, autistic people learning to fall in love. It's so fun and sweet. I just, I, yeah, high, high recommend. And then I, I need to watch A Different World because I've never seen it. And it seems oh like- Oh my the God, you have to watch that. You have kids, you oh, know. you've never seen A Different World? I know. I'm obsessed with that show. It was that whole Monday night. It was Monday night, right? It was the Monday night lineup on NBC. Actually, they were thir- Thursday. They were on night, Thursday. 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 Yeah, after. Uh, and after then they Cos- moved. Uh, Cosby. Cosby. And then yeah. they moved. Yeah. <laughs> no, I've never I remember it so well. But um, if Kadeem hears this, sorry. Uh, <laughs> oh, my God. Dwayne and Whitley? Come on. I know. Okay. <laughs> the wedding <laughs> one? <laughs> Scene. I've seen the scene, but I just, it was a little, I think I was just a little bit too young for it. So I'm, um, I feels like the perfect, cause I know it's streaming. I think it's the perfect, yeah. um, the perfect like candy kind of show that yeah. I want. Where is it streaming? Mm-hmm. No, I want to watch a different world. I think it's on. It is streaming. It and, might be um, on a, there's no, a Peacock oh, or something. it might be on Netflix. Yeah. Maybe Netflix, yeah. It might yeah. be on Peacock. Um, it's it's somewhere. And it's Netflix, cause I know Moesha just dropped on Netflix. That's right. We're going to put a bunch of shows. Yeah. Lovely. That's right. I lo- I'm excited for you to watch A Different World because you get to watch Kadeem like slowly take over the show. Like he, exactly. he became become a star. star. On the show. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Uh, he starts off with just his sunglasses. His, <laughs> That's right. yeah, his entire like, character was sunglasses. Like the heart and soul. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, thank you all so much. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. I hope we can do this again sometime. Um, everyone should go check out all of your shows. Uh, I am such a fan of them, and I think others will be as well if they're not already. Thanks so much, Ken. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Forever. Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram, at Forever Dog Team, and liking our page on Facebook.